everyone. I'm Larissa Russell of Creative You, and I'm your host of the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Here's where we talk about the connection between creativity and healing by interviewing amazing creatives, spectacular healers, and inspiring people who have used creativity in their healing. What does it mean to be creative? What is creativity? You don't have to write a best-selling book or paint a masterpiece or even play in a rock band. Creativity is in everything that we do, in the ways we think, in the way we run a business, in our everyday lives, we are creative all the time. Let's talk about how we are creative and how creativity helps us heal mentally, physically, and emotionally, right now on the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Hi everyone, Larissa Russell of Creative You Healing, and welcome again to the Creative Soul Healing Podcast. Today I have with me Karen Ascarelli, a survivor of gun violence and one of BBC's 2018 Outlook Inspirations nominees, Karen Ascarelli is an author and speaker from Marabella Trinidad. Her mission is to transform hurt into hope by using the power of storytelling to inspire and motivate others. Her books include From Lion to Lamb, A Spiritual Journey, Bounce Back Better, 10 Plus One Key Steps for Building Resilience and Hot Cocoa on a Rainy Day, 10 Plus One Stories to Warm Your Heart. I love that title. (laughs) So welcome, Karen. Thank you, Larissa. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm so happy you're here. Um, You know, I did, excuse me, I did have a chance to talk to you for the summit, the Writer's Summit that you were a part of. Um, And when I heard your story, I just thought, wow, what an inspiration you are, and I need to know more. So can you share for our listeners some of your story and the path that's brought you here? Sure. Um, it's not always easy sharing it, but, you know, sharing each time we share, it helps us to, to grow and to heal. So it really is a pleasure to share it with you. Um, so my story, I'll start at a different point than we started in the last, the last time we spoke. So I'll start by saying that I am... I am, first of all, I'm a mother of one son. He's an adult now. Um, At the time of a life-changing incident, he was 22 years old and I was 47. But prior to that, I was also a teacher. I used to teach chemistry in secondary schools here in Trinidad and Tobago. And um, I, uh, I have, I'm still an educator, but I've become also an author, as you said, right? But Prior to 2013, 2013 is a turning point in my life. And I always like to say that I have two lives. I had two chances, unlike what most people might have. But I think that I did have two chances. And in the first life, I was just a normal average teacher, you know, going about your work as usual. Uh, My hobby was running. Um, There was nothing spectacular about my life. And in 2013, to be precise, Tuesday, 29 January, 2013, my my life changed. I went for my normal evening run. And after that, I went for a drive with a friend who drove my car. And um, at some point, I got tired and wanted to get back home. And as we turned from a minor road onto a major road, we had to stop before turning. And in the instant when we stopped, the car was surrounded by armed criminals. Um, I don't know why, but in my head, I think of them as bandits. That's the word I always use. So we were surrounded by these armed bandits. And um, I, I really, it, it happened very suddenly. 
and they just appeared out of nowhere. I realized that something was wrong and that something was going to happen. And so instinctively I moved in some way trying to protect myself. But instead what happened was that at the instant that I moved, the bandit fired a shot and I was shot in my, my face. Uh, that's where I, I knew I was shot there, but I was also shot, I would realize later on, on my, in my chest and my shoulder. And um, what happened was that uh, in, uh, in the instant that the shooting took place, fortunately my driver realized what was going on and sped off. But even as we sped off that night, you know, just like in the movies, you hear this eerie music in the background and you hear the sirens and you hear the shooting. There were these noises, sounding like fireworks, but it was really gunshots. They continued shooting at the car even after we pulled off. What I did find out after the incident from the police is that they were criminals on the run and they were they had actually changed um, getaway cars twice before and this was the third one they were trying to get. Their modus operandi would be to eliminate the driver and take control of the car. But I prevented that process by moving forward and taking the shot instead. Um, I was bleeding. I mean, blood was just pouring out of my face and the smell, the smell of blood was cloying. You know, the smell, it's fresh. And um, the driver didn't realize what had happened. And he looked across and when he saw what was going on, he just started to scream. Now, I never screamed, but I was scared. And there were a lot of thoughts that filled my mind that night. I, I wondered up so many things. And it's so strange that one of the things that entered my mind was that this was going to end up in the newspaper next morning. And everybody would know that my face was destroyed. You know how we women are. First thing we think about is our faces. Um, I wasn't really aware of the extent of the damage to my face. So when I realized that I was shot and I put my hand to my face and I felt um, it, it felt rough. And I was hoping that it was just that pieces of glass and metal may have stuck to my face. I wasn't aware that what had happened was that the bullet had exploded in my face. So the result of that was that my chin was completely blown off. So um, I'll show you just a little. So under here, what they try to do is they try to just put all, um, you know, whatever they had to do, whatever work they had to do, they try to put all the marks under my um, chin. But of course, there's still a mark here that you probably can't see very well, but this is where I had a graft done. Um, most people who meet me now for the first time are not aware that something has happened to me. Uh, they say that I look normal. I don't feel like I look normal because I still remember what I used to look like. And um, I've got this terrible overbite that makes me not want to smile very much anymore. But I'm a naturally smiley person. So sometimes it's hard to hold it back. <laughs> and then I think I scare people <laughs> with this big grin. <laughs> but anyway, that... Um, that, that night when I got to the, before I even got to the hospital, um, we met a police car just about two streets away. That was so amazing. They were in pursuit of those bandits. Um, and we, we stopped. I was transferred to the police car. And they took me to the hospital rather than wait for an ambulance. Um, I was still, in, they couldn't even believe that I was shot because I was so quiet. 
I remained quiet right through that uh, whole episode. I never once screamed aloud. And I think that part of the reason for that is because I recognized uh, how badly I was hurt and I knew that I needed to save my energy so that I could fight for my survival, you know, rather than scream for my survival. I think that's what I decided to do. Um, it wasn't a conscious decision, but at some level I must have recognized what was going on. And um, when I got to the hospital, uh, one of the, what the, the staff found, and I found out this after, they found that it was amazing that they were there rushing to bring wheeled, a wheelchair and a gurney to lift me up. And one person actually wanted to physically lift me up and take me into the um, emergency room because by the time I got there, I had lost so much blood that I was close to thermal shock already. And um, I had no idea what I was looking like. So I just walked into the emergency room with my chin hanging by a piece of thread, more or less, just by a time. So you could imagine what a sight it would have been for those people who were there. And I didn't even think about them. It was only long after. I'm talking about maybe like a year after that I even gave thought to that. And um, so I got there. I refused any kind of assistance, which was typical of the old me. I was always a bit arrogant, headstrong, independent kind of person. Um, that changed a lot, but in a good way. Not, I'm still independent, but I'm not as arrogant as I used to be. And um, when I got there, um, the hospital staff, I apparently they did start working on me, but I have no recollection of that but they must have done something to stop the bleeding. What I do remember is um, they asked for a contact for a family member and they wanted my son's number because he was an adult at the time and old enough to receive a message like this or so they believed. And um, I didn't want to give them his number. You know, he's my only son. <laughs> How could I send a message like that to my son at that time of the night, not knowing, you know, what he how he would receive it. So I didn't give them it. I couldn't remember my brother's number, but somehow somebody got a hold of my phone and they called my brother. They called both my son and my elder brother. My son couldn't make it down before I went into surgery, but my elder brother did. And, you know, I have to tell you, my father had passed away in 2009 and my bro big brother, who's just like 11 months older than I am, he stepped forward and he brought me such peace that night. Simple, simple words that he said to me. He just whispered because my concern was how I was looking. I knew I was in danger of losing my life. But again, I was concerned about how I was looking. And I didn't want him to see me that way. But he came and he whispered very softly and very gently into my ear that he was seeing me the way he always knew me. I'm not crying. <laughs> it's just a little overwhelmed sometimes. <laughs> I've told mm -hmm. a story so many times. I, I shouldn't be overcome by emotion. But as we, as we will get to later on, I guess, healing is a process. It's not just, you know, a one and done deal. So um, I eventually went in for emergency surgery. Um, 
but you know i'd like to share one little piece of story with you again i don't know how much time we have but um my at the time that before my brother got there i lay there and i kept thinking to myself why aren't they doing something why are they leaving me here to bleed to death because remember i told you i couldn't remember them doing anything and i just lay there and i kept thinking to myself maybe if i tell them that my cousin works in at that hospital in the emergency room maybe they will work on me you know put some some pep in their step as we say you know uh so and it was so strange because in the instant that i was thinking that i heard a voice to my right and the person said um well maybe if it is who i think it is and i recognized the voice as my cousin's voice and this part i always say it was like in a horror movie it would have been horrifying for her not for me i rose up like i mean i was lying there almost dead i rose up grabbed onto her hand looked into her eyes and i didn't even recognize her but i i just thought you know this is my one chance i looked into her eyes and i just shook my head and immediately she realized that it was me she didn't even recognize me and the condition that i was in and um immediately work started they started to remove my my clothes and even that was another story because i was extremely shy person you know so being undressed in front of all these people but i can think about that at the time so they they started work because of knowing that this was my cousin and um eventually i got into the emergency room where i spent i don't know how many hours in emergency surgery and mostly what they did at that time so remember there would have been like a big hole here so all they did was they just grabbed everything and put it together and stitch it up but before they did that they had to remove all the shrapnel whatever metal glass bone whatever there was stuck in there they had to get out as much as possible to prevent any infection developing later on so what they didn't do that they should have done at that stage was because the jaw was fractured right along the side in addition to missing this piece they needed to wire the jaw shut to stabilize it that wasn't done at the time and i think it was more out of a haste in trying to save the life you know rather than trying to fix at the t- same time so um they didn't do it so they just um they just bandaged everything they put in so um i had shown tried to show you this last time i think it's showing a little better there but there's a line there um it's from a tracheostomy which is a tube that they put in and they had to put in that because the tongue had been macerated and partially detached so it was sort of slipping down into my throat and could have strangled me so they had to put in a tracheostomy here and um i think that because of the tracheostomy i wasn't able to speak because what it does is it presses against the voice box so you can't speak so i for about 3 weeks i was unable to talk to anybody and i think they were all very happy that i wasn't talking <laughs> and um, they also had to put in something called a nasogastric tube so that's the tube that feeds through the nostrils into the stomach and um i got up the next morning in icu where i stayed for about maybe just about 3 days and then from there I was transferred to a ward um for 
about maybe like a month again. Now, what's amazing about that, Larissa, is that um, the doctors had predicted that I would stay at least six months in ICU and a further six months at the hospital. And that never happened. I mean, after one month, I was out. Um, healing was rapid. And um, I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that healing. Uh, so basically, that's the story. I, I couldn't talk. So in those three weeks when I couldn't talk, I used to write to communicate to everybody. So um, and apparently writing seems to be a lost skill because they were all shocked that I was writing. <laughs> I mean, I was a teacher after all. What else would I do? So I used to write sometimes with the right hand, sometimes with the left hand, because depending on where the IV was inserted, you know, sometimes I had to use left or right. So I learned to write with my left hand. And um, in the writing, uh, at first it was just to communicate to others, but then I started to communicate to myself because there were things I needed to say, but I couldn't. So I started to write down stuff. And then I wanted to pray out loud and I couldn't, so I used to write down that as well. And um, I think that's how the journey uh, began. I started writing and not realizing that the writing was actually helping me along the way. So in a, not, in a long, in a very big nutshell, <laughs> that's the story that has me here today. Yes, and it, it's such an inspiring story to see what you've been through and where you are now. And the, I'm sure you were an amazing person before, um, but to know you now and and see, you're absolutely beautiful. I know you worry about your looks, but you really have no reason, in my opinion, to worry about it. But I, I understand when you are used to something. And, um, but also then what you've done with that pain and what you've done with that horrific event that happened to you, right? And how you came through that. So the writing is your main uh, form of creativity, I'm assuming. So then what does healing with creativity mean to you? Right. So um, I'll answer that kind of indirectly, if it's okay. <laughs> so um, what I didn't mention to you was that um, most of the physical healing took place over a period of about nine months. I had surgeries up to about five years after the incident, but the majority, the biggest part of it took place in those first nine months, which included reconstructive and plastic surgery. So for the first nine months after the incident, I really focused on my physical healing. I tried to do everything that my doctor said I had to do. I attended every single clinic. So it was every week I was going to clinics and sitting down. You know what the wait is like in a public hospital. So I would sit and wait for hours. Um, and I couldn't eat back then. So because I couldn't eat anything solid for about nine months until after the surgeries so during that time I would just be drinking and I was really really weak I was down to about 80 pounds back then I'm five feet two just to give you an idea <laughs> of what 80 pounds would look like um, 
So um, I, after the nine months, I slipped into post-traumatic stress disorder, which would be, you know, getting flashbacks, nightmares, episodes of wanting to scream out aloud, um, episodes of not wanting to sleep or sleeping too much. Or I actually started to withdraw from the things that I used to love to do. Um, now, I'm saying all that to let you know what creativity means to me in terms of healing. And I, I see creativity not just as, you know, people think of it as the arts, the creative arts, and just, you know, it, it's more than that. Creativity is any kind of response that you have to a challenge and something that you do to overcome that challenge. So for me, one of the things I did was I, I deflected all my pain by focusing on the pain that other people had. So around Christmas time, now remember my injury took place in January. So by Christmas time of that year, 2013, what I did was I decided to put together some hampers for families. I didn't know who they were going to be, but I put together some really nice hampers. And what I have to tell you is that by that time, my salary as a teacher had stopped. So I had no income coming in. All my savings had gone towards um, surgery. And so... Um, it was a bold step for me to take to want to give to others when I didn't have, but it was a very important step. I think it was a key step to my healing because in focusing so much on other people's pain, it kind of deflected away from my own. And it was only after that I started to see an upswing in post-traumatic stress disorder for myself. So by January of the following year, I started to write and completed my first book. So um, I would say, you know, I think the question you asked was creativity and healing. So I think it's important that we respond in, in different ways, in new ways, when we are faced with challenges. And when we do that, then we are being creative. Oh, I think that's so important. And, and I often say that creativity is in everything we do. So um, I like the way that you explained that. And it, when we're intentionally creative, is, um, that healing can happen through that, right? And so I think that was really important for you to, to make those hampers and share, but then also to, to be writing your story as well, which I think was also, I'm sure, very healing, difficult, but healing. Um, so now that you work with other people in their writing as well, is that yes. correct? Yeah. And so then what inspires you about the work that you do? <laughs> yeah, so well, um, I will, again, I'll say I'll answer indirectly because um, to answer that, I need to go through the process. So you see, like the first book was easy in the sense that I was using this story. I was telling the story of what had happened to me. But the educator in me couldn't just tell a story. So what I had to do is I had to find a way to tell my story that so that people would be able to learn lessons out of everything that happened from this event. So what happened for me, um, I know that everybody wouldn't relate to this but I have to tell my story as it is right um I'm a Christian so what happened was I based the first book 
around is something that's called the Beatitudes. It's found in the New Testament in the Bible. And it's really like um, a series of eight uh, teachings that are life teachings. It's basic principles, universal principles about peace and love and things like that, compassion and you know, serving a higher purpose for those who are not Christians. I mean, even though it's based on that, the principles are universal. So I based that, that was the, the scaffolding, as I call it, for the book. Each chapter was based on one of the Beatitudes. And um, so now that was okay. But out of the book, I started to get speaking engagements and it continued, there weren't many, and they weren't only locally in Trinidad, but I started to get some, a few outside of Trinidad, like I went to Miami for one, for one in 2015, I think it was. And um, it slowly started happening. But what was outstanding for me back then was that every time I spoke on a platform, some at least one person would come up to me to want to share their story. To tell me they understood what I was talking about and they could relate to it so much because they had their own pain. While it would not have been the same as my pain, they had their own pain. And by when I recognized that, you know, I, I kept my writing going. I, as you said, I published uh, two other books after that. By the time I got to the fourth book, I didn't even get to it yet. Before that, I realized, wait, all these people are talking about their pain and wanting to share their pain. Many of them um, talked about writing and wanting to write a book. And along the way, I had started small group sessions using reflective writing as a tool for healing. So there were people who were getting the benefits of reflective writing, who had wonderful stories to tell, who were writing pretty well, and they needed a platform to share their stories. And so I came up with the idea of creating a series of books. And um, I remember being informed too and reading a book by one of our local authors. His name is Michael Anthony. And his book was The Year in San Fernando. San Fernando is a city in which I live. And so it was a story about that city. And in one of the chapters, there was this young boy. He was working for a, la a lady. He was just doing odd jobs. And he had spent a year in San Fernando and one day he couldn't do anything because it was just pouring. Rain was falling. And he had one of our old time houses where we had galvanized alone. There's no ceiling. So when the rain fell, you would hear this loud noise on the ceiling. You would just feel all cozy inside because you're seeing this rain. You're seeing the floods pouring down through the um, drains. And in the background, the lady was... Um, cooking she was making what we call fried bakes which is where you take a dough and you fry it and it smells wonderful <laughs> and she was also brewing a pot of hot cocoa and I'll never forget that scene and the comfort that it brought and that it brings to me too and from that I, I came up with the idea of that last book hot cocoa on a rainy day and you know so the, the, the title alone is supposed to bring comfort and all of these stories are stories that uh, about people who had many challenges and overcame their challenges and, you know, positive, uplifting stories. I think I more than answered your question there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I think I think that's really important that 
when we share our stories, how that helps other people, right? And I think that we often think we're the only ones going through this or nobody wants to hear, you know, from us and nobody wants to listen to our woes. But when we share what we're going through, it allows other people to open up to share what they're going through or have been through. And that's how we heal together, right? And I think that's so important, so important. So with all that you've been through and your whole life behind you, well, not your whole life because you're still alive, sorry. But with, you know, um, what would you say you are the proudest of in your life? So, because um, that's a hard one, you know. <laughs> I thought about it a long time because I'd been asked that before. Um, I, I want to say two things. Two things I'm very proud of. Number one, I'm very, very proud of my son. I think that's my proudest thing. But if it, if it has to be something else, I'm proud that in 2015, was it? Yes, in 2015, while I was still just a mere shadow of a person, while I was still building back up, I was able to train for and complete a half marathon. And to me, I mean, that, that, that was, it showed me that anything I set my mind to do, I can do it with the work. I have to put in the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I yeah. hope those two yeah. are okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and, and to think that was, you know, two years after this incident and, you know, you talked about that first year where you weren't eating or anything. So, you know, another year later and there you are running a half marathon. That's amazing. Right. That's amazing. Well, it, it was. I mean, the truth is, I had always been a runner before, but I had never run such a long race. My longest race would have been a 5K. Um, but um, I really, I started back from ground zero because when I started back, I had to start back just walking and I couldn't even walk a whole block at first. So it really took a lot of determination and. Um, the will, it took the will. You, I had to want to, to do it and I had to put in all the training and find out about what was the best ways to do things and what, you know, I had to find out a little more about running methods that I hadn't found out about before. Yeah. Like into, yeah. And, and that's true. That's the strength and determination of putting your mind to something and deciding to do it and then doing it, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. absolutely. So then if you could change one aspect of our society through the work you do, what would that be? Right. So one of the things that I had started out to do, this is before I started with the reflective writing, is I started to advocate through an NGO called Project Rare, raising awareness on the ripple effect of gun violence. I started to advocate against violence particularly gun violence and for peace. So just to give you an idea, I know the United States has um, a big problem with gun violence. And I think that internationally it's becoming even more of a problem. But Trinidad is ideally located in the Caribbean so that we are a good transit point for drugs and guns. So whatever happens in the U.S., we always have a trickle-down effect in Trinidad. And uh, we don't manufacture guns here, but we have so many guns in Trinidad. It's amazing. 
And if the police would report removing 179 guns off the streets, rest assured that there would be 20 times more that number coming in. And that's just my rough estimation, right? I'm sure the figures are different, but that's just to give you an idea of the problem we have here. So um, I started advocating against that. And initially what I started doing was holding what I call peace services. So in those services, I would um, get experts to talk about the physical, um, emotional, financial, and spiritual effects of one act of gun violence. Because most of the times when you read about gun violence, you don't think much beyond, well, the person was shot and either they were killed or they were injured. But when you look at it at a deeper, from a deeper perspective, what you will see is that that one act of gun violence affects um, not just the person, but their family members. It will affect the community. In my case, it affected my students badly. The morning they found out about it, my students packed up their bags. They were in school. They packed up their bags and they were heading out through the gates. It's a good thing we have security guards that held them back. They wanted to come up to the hospital right away. Um, they, I don't know if the teachers were as badly affected, I guess. I would like to think they were. And... Um, you know, they had to put things in place for counseling for these young students. So I, I started off by addressing people, communities generally about these things using experts. But what I found as I delved deeper into it, I realized that people weren't willing, although they were aware that there was a need for it, they weren't willing to come forward to help. So I had to, I was kind of fighting on my own for a long time. And eventually what I realized I needed to do was to address the problem from a different angle. And that angle was to start working with young people. So I started working on character development and character values rather than um, just advocating for peace and you know telling people about these things. And um, so one of the things that I would like to see happening in society and in my community is I would like to see people's attitudes changing. I would like to see more compassion in the world. I would like to see people caring for each other and having greater respect for life in general. And it shouldn't matter who you are, what you look like, what you believe in, you know, what you what you subscribe to, what beliefs you hold, dear. We have to love each other and respect each other simply because we are fellow human beings. So that's that's it. Oh, it's, and that's so important. I think if we could come from a place of love and caring and empathy, we could change so much, right? And unfortunately, hurt people hurt people. So getting mm -hmm. to the youth, I think, is, is one of the most important places to start and to, to let them know that they don't have to continue hurting because they hurt. There are other ways to do things. And I yeah. think, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So as women, we typically struggle with imposter syndrome at some point in our life. <laughs> have you struggled with imposter syndrome? And if so, what have you done about it? <laughs> well, um, Larissa, yes, I have. And I still do struggle. I think it's a constant struggle. Um, 
I, I sometimes feel I'm a chemistry teacher. Who am I to tell people about writing? You know, that's one English teacher. <laughs> the science people are usually judged as being poor writers. I don't consider myself a top writer or the best writer or anything, but I do believe strongly that I have a message to share. And just having that strong belief is the only thing that helps me continue doing what I'm doing in spite of the fact that I do suffer with imposter syndrome. So I think that, you know, um, I think it's going to be a constant struggle. Confidence is important. Um, it's, if you don't have it, it's easy to build simply by repeatedly doing the things that you set out to do. So when I first started speaking, I was my first, I still think about that first speaking engagement. It was, I don't know what the people thought, but I felt that it was a disaster because I didn't think that I connected with my audience. And I thought I would have because being a teacher for so many years before I had taught for 22 years before, I thought it would be similar, it would be easy, but these were adults and for some reason I never connected with them. But it got easier every single time that I did it. I still do feel very nervous. I still do feel that, you know, I get that, that feeling creeping. Who are you? I doubt myself. Who are you to go and talk to these people? These are experts. These are successful people. Who are you? But I let that, um, I try to drown it all with thoughts of how powerful and important the message is. And it doesn't matter who it comes from. You know, my belief, um, I'll draw a little bit from the Christianity. Um, there was one of the apostles called Paul. And Paul was not a great speaker. But yet he was able to spread the message enough so that people all over got the message, right? And so if he had allowed his impediment from uh, stopping him from spreading the message, then it would not have reached to where it is today. And so it's the same with me. I, I like to think of myself like that in that way. I have this impediment. Um, but I have this great message and I'm going to just keep doing it. Yeah, I love that. I love that because I, I think that's really important that you say, who are you to be speaking to them? But who better to be speaking to them, right? Because you've been there, you've lived it, and you've written your books. So who better to teach people to write than the people who have written the books? And I think it's so important that we we remember that when we are caught up in that, you know, uh, self-confidence issue and, and thinking, you know, who am I? You are the perfect person to be doing that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, that's another thing that could help having people like you around, people who could support us. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely does help. I have to say when you have people in your corner, it definitely yeah. does help for, yes. So, do you have an inspirational quote that you live by or a motto? You know, I never used to, but um, I do have one now. And it is by the Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. And he said, everything can be taken away from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. 
the ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. And I'm really glad that's my motto and it ties in nicely also with International Women's Day 2021 theme, hashtag choose to challenge. <laughs> that, that gave me goosebumps as you were saying it actually, because it was just like, whoa, yes. He, he attitude is everything. Yeah. Very powerful. Very powerful. So is there anything else you'd like to add that we maybe haven't discussed today? Um, I Maybe one thing that I could add, I want to just leave people with this message that no matter how small an action may seem, if it is a positive action in the right direction, whether it is for healing or whether it is to spread your work or your message, all positive actions, no matter how small, are significant. Yeah. And I, that's it. <laughs> oh, that, and that's so important. I think that's so true because each small step we take forward changes everything. Right? It has that ripple effect. And so... I think that's so important. So I just want to thank you so much for being here and especially for sharing your story. I think it's really important for people to recognize that you can, you know, have horrific things happen to you and then move forward and become uh, inspiration and how your life can change. So often people get caught up in, in the negative things that happen and not in where it actually leads them, right? So, yes. yes, I want to yes. thank you so much. Thank you, Larissa. Yeah. To our listeners, we will see you again next week. And in the meantime, I wish for you amazingly creative days. Are you a daily journaler? Do you want more creativity in your day? We have two great creativity journals to start your day with. One for people who already have a journaling practice and one for people who are new to journaling. Both are an amazing way to start your day. Both make the perfect gift for a person in your life. Check out Have an Amazingly Creative Day and How Do I Have an Amazingly Creative Day, both currently available on Amazon. Click the link below to purchase yours now.